Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that beautiful prayer of supplication. And we certainly echo your concerns for the persecuted church around the world. And, you know, as I was thinking about the message this morning, given the uh, proximity to our prayer of supplication, where we just heard so many deep needs, great needs of, of great magnitude, uh, particularly with the persecuted church. I thought it was very timely that on the heels of that, that uh, season of prayer that we would be looking at a message that, that, that offers so much hope, so much confidence for the, for the church, for the believers, for our future, because we're talking about the sovereign reign of God over the world. Things are not going to always be this way. Praise God. And we are people of faith and believe in the Word of God, then we have reason to have confidence, even as we look at the dismal state of the world, even our country uh, today. It's been my privilege to be preaching for several weeks now a series of messages out of the Psalms that I've simply entitled Life Lessons from the Psalms. And I pray that these lessons are impacting your life and my life and helping us to draw closer to the Lord and have a deeper understanding of this great benefit of being a Christian, a child of God. And you know, as we just observed the Lord's Supper, and, and what a wonderful occasion that is, the, the Lord's Supper is an occasion for us to remember. Remember who the Lord was and, and who He is and who He will be and always will be. We remember when the Lord came. That He came to save. But we also remember that He came and He's coming again. He's coming to reign supremely on the face of the earth and all the world. And I was thinking about Jesus' disciples. You know, it's interesting in reading early church history. Some scholars say that that early church, consisting of the apostles and all the believers that were added by the Holy Spirit there in the city of Jerusalem, that they were coming together on a daily basis. And some scholars have suggested that they observe the Lord's Supper as often as once a day. I mean, my goodness, you're so excited about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ and, and the powerful uh, presence of the Holy Spirit. Why not? So I, I don't know if we can say that authoritatively, but, but you know, it certainly seems to, that the text would suggest that they came together often to break bread and some say, well, that was the Lord's Supper and to remember. And I thought about those early disciples those first disciples, uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew and, and others, you know, as they would partake of the Lord's Supper, very much like you and I did just a minute ago, a few minutes ago, you know, I'm sure that that, that experience of the Lord's Supper conjured up in their minds, those first apostles, when they would partake of the bread, symbolizing the broken bread of Christ, uh, body of Christ, and then the cup, symbolizing his, his atoning blood that was shed for their sins. I, I just wonder in their minds, what memories must have flooded their minds? Surely there were many. You know, as they were partaking of the elements of the Lord's table back then, I'm sure that they recalled, you know, how Jesus reached out to so many people with, with deep compassion as he did, you know, he was so tender with the children and receiving the children. He had such a humble attitude, how patient he was with people. I'm sure that they thought about how Jesus, the Son of God, came into Jerusalem on his triumphal entry that uh, week of the Passover. His last uh, entrance into Jerusalem, as you will. 
And he rode on a, a humble uh, donkey. Not, not just a donkey, but the cult of a donkey. Unlike a, maybe a secular political leader who would ride in on a majestic white horse, you know. Here comes the Son of God riding on this humble little cult of a donkey. I'm sure that as they partook of the Lord's Supper, they thought about the Lord and they remembered Incidents like in John's Gospel in chapter 13 where Jesus, there at the Lord's table, there at that last Passover that we just talked about. As, as Jesus took the elements of the Lord's table with his disciples, how he himself took his own uh, towel and wrapped himself and, and got a basin of water and stooped down. The Son of God, the creator of the universe, the sovereign ruler, eternal God, knelt down before his very disciples and washed their dirty, nasty feet as a demonstration of humility and love. I'm sure they remember that. I'm sure that as they partook of the Lord's Supper and maybe broke the bread in front of one another, that they saw in their mind's eyes the Son of God saying, Take this bread. And eat it. And remember, this is my body. This is my body that is broken for you. And the visual pictures that must have cascaded through their minds. These are some of the memories that they probably had that, that helped them to, to, to be refreshed in their recollections of their precious Lord. But you know, I'm sure also that they recalled other things that not only pointed them back to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and the death uh, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I'm sure also that these early disciples, as they were remembering, they remembered things that Jesus said, things that Jesus taught that caused them to look way into the distant future. Because Jesus talked about the future. He didn't just talk about the here and now, right in that present time. He talked about the future. For instance, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn over to Matthew's Gospel before we launch into Psalm 97... Let me just, just refresh your memory here. Jesus is teaching apocalyptically, eschatologically. He's talking about the end of time. And he's just talked about the great tribulation period there in Matthew's gospel chapter 24. But then he, he launches into this great vision of the coming of the Son of Man. Beginning in Matthew 24, 29, when Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. And the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect. From the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. You know, Jesus made it very clear that indeed he had an agenda. And it wasn't finished with his, his resurrection and his ascension because Jesus says, I'm coming back. As we look at Psalm 97 today, you'll see words that were given prophetically to the anonymous psalmist who wrote this particular psalm and possibly the ones that just before it and the ones right after because in this fourth book of the psalms that's consisted of, of Psalms 90 through Psalms 106, this fourth book of the psalms, you find a group, a subgroup of psalms that speak specifically about the sovereign reign of God upon the earth. And these are uh, Psalms uh, 93 uh, through 100. And so nestled right in the middle of that, we find Psalm 
97. I could have picked any one of these songs. And they all talk about the same basic thing. The sovereign reign of God on the earth one day in the future when He comes again. So hundreds of years before Jesus spoke those words in Matthew 24 that we just read, the psalmist was already given a very vivid description of the coming of the Lord, the return of the Lord, and the reign of the Lord. And so I want us to look at that today when we consider what is it like when the Son of Man comes again, when God comes to earth to reign upon the earth again. And we look at the nature of the Lord's return as we look in Psalm 97. Look with me there in verse 1. The, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of the isles or islands be glad. And I realize that in some translations, instead of islands, it will say coastlands. In other words, universally, all of the countries, all, globally, His return and His reign is universal. It is a universal occasion, an occurrence. You know, one thing is I, I noticed that when we talk about the glory of the Lord and the appearing of God, the Scriptures, no surprise, are consistent. And you go back into the historical books like the book of Exodus and you read about God coming down. Man, what an occasion. As Moses is leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, having just been delivered from slavery in Egypt, in Egypt and God instructs Moses to bring the children of Israel, that whole throng of maybe two million of them all together, and they're camped near the, the, the mountain of uh, Mount Sinai. And, and in, in Exodus in chapter 19, in verse 10, listen to these words. Let your mind just kind of visualize. I tried to just capture in my mind what must it have been like to be an Israelite in the midst of the, the Jews there at the foot of Mount Sinai when God says to Moses, get my people and bring them to me. I'm coming to them. Whoa, we. Anyway, in verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow and let them wash their clothes and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down upon Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. God is coming. He's going to let them see his presence. They wouldn't be able to draw close to Him. He forbade them from doing that. They would not be able to look directly upon the Lord because that would kill them, as God would instruct Moses later. But then, you know, on that third day, in verse 16 of Exodus chapter 19, it says, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of, of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. I imagine he almost had to drag them. Because they're hearing, all, they're seeing, and they're hearing, and they're back in the camp. And, and now Moses says, let's go meet God now. I'm sure a lot of them were trying to offer excuses of headaches and, and maybe head uh, arthritis and things like that. And in verse 17, and Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now listen, just trying to visualize. Now, Mount Sinai was completely covered in smoke because God descended upon it in fire. Its it smoke ascended like a smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him by voice. Wow, can you imagine? Just being there, seeing that sight, hearing those sounds, feeling the earth beneath your feet, trembling just because God chose to come down from heaven. His very powerful presence and the glory of God. 
created a, a great sensation that stirred up the fear in the people, I'm sure. We saw that in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, when he just, what we just read when Jesus was teaching about the coming of the Lord. What a, what a magnificent occasion that was. What a majestic occasion it was. How it stirred in the hearts of people that, that fear of God, just knowing that He's coming and, and, and reigning here on the earth. In Revelation, I just want you to see, in the history, also in the prophetic portion of God's Word, Talking about the coming of the Lord in Revelation chapter 1 verse 7. Behold, He is coming with clouds and every eye will see Him and they also who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him even so Amen. So John in that great revelatory vision that God gave him of the future saw the coming of the Lord and the impact. Listen, this will be a universal occasion. There will be no such thing as one part of the earth seeing the coming of the Lord and another part of the earth not seeing it. Hey, we could do that with technology today. We could show everybody on the face of the earth just by satellite today what's going on. But I don't think we'll need satellites. I don't think we'll need cable television, ladies and gentlemen. Because when God settles upon the earth, all the nations, all the islands, all the coastlands, everyone from east to west and all through the world will know that the Lord has come. And in that moment, not only will everybody see him in his power, in his glory, but I want you to see also that the, that moment, in that moment, all of, it's a moment that all of creation has yearned for. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. He's not just talking about people who are on the earth. He's talking about all the physical earth. The creation of God will rejoice. We know that the Apostle Paul tells us in his... Uh, epistle to the Romans in Romans in chapter 8 we know that Paul tells us that all of creation is yearning for the coming of the Lord in verse 19 of chapter 8 of Romans Paul says for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope Paul goes on and says, For we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the fruit, first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly, waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Listen, not only are the people of God yearning for the return of God, not only are the saved believers looking ahead to the coming of the Lord, but all of creation, the very plants that you see, the trees, the mountains, the rivers, the oceans, all of the, uh, the, the, the creatures of the sea, all of the, 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 the birds in the sky. Listen, all of creation is under the curse and yearning for that glorious day when the glory of God will settle upon the earth. What a wonderful time it will be. His awesome and terrifying presence impacts all. Everyone will be impacted. Look at verse 2. Describing And just remember what we just read out of Exodus and, and, and Jesus' teachings in Matthew's Gospel and then John's revelation and uh, or the revelation to God, John in chapter 1. Just, just remember that and look at the similarity of the description of God. 
In verse 2, clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. Oh, listen, let me tell you one of the things that happens, one of the, 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 the things that occurs as a result of the Lord coming is His delivering a swift judgment on the enemies of God. Look at verse 3. Look at verse 3. It talks about a fire that goes before Him. And what? And He burns up His enemies round about Him. There is no contest. There is no battle. There is no struggle, ladies and gentlemen. When God settles upon the face of the earth and He comes in all of His power and His glory, if you're an enemy of God, you are doomed. He destroys. And that's consistent with the teachings of the scriptures. Do you remember what John said again over in Revelation chapter 19? This is the day that we look forward to. I believe this will be a glorious time that we'll see the Lord bring forth his vengeance upon this rebellious and, and rejecting world. John saw a vision there in, in John, Revelation 19 verse 11. He says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one except him knew. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. I believe we're in that crowd, praise the Lord, because we've already been raptured. And we're coming in the second coming of Christ as he brings his justice upon the earth. Now, in verse 15, now out of his mouth comes a sharp sword and, and, and that with it he will strike the nations that is all the nations who have rebelled against him and rejected his precious son Jesus Christ and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written king of kings and lord of lords in verse 21 and the rest were killed with the sword which, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Listen, when God comes in all of His great glory and power, He's going to exact judgment upon this sinful world once and for all. And the thing for us to remember is this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So as His disciples are remembered as they partake of the Lord's Supper, they remember this gentle, kind, and patient man who was so delicate with children and, and so patient with a woman caught in adultery. And he, would, he was so patient even dealing with his adversaries. And he fulfilled the, 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 the prophecy of Isaiah 53, the, the humble, suffering servant. And he didn't even speak a word in his own defense. This same Jesus is coming again. But ladies and gentlemen, we won't see Him again as a meek and a mild teacher. Because when He comes again he'll be seen as he truly is in all of his power his infinite glory and majesty and sovereignty and that's what the disciples would remember based upon the teachings of the scriptures that's what the psalmist is saying here in this passage well that's the nature of the lord's return wow that sounds exciting right there. You know, being a science fiction fan myself, I like special effects, but nobody does special effects like God Almighty. Amen? What a day it will be. There will be no, no question in anybody's mind about who is this? He's God! 
the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is Jesus Christ, the precious, beloved Son of God. He is the judge of the world. Let's look at the response to the Lord's return as we continue in Psalm 97, looking at verse 7 through 9. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship Him, all you gods, little g. Listen to what he's saying here. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Listen, the response of the, of, of the world to the Lord's second coming actually is mixed. And you see this consistently in the, in the scriptural pattern. You see a combination of responses ranging from dismay to delight. As you recall, when Jesus was talking in Matthew 24 about His second coming, He said that the tribes of the earth, and in Revelation chapter 1, John says this too, and Jesus says this through John in chapter 1 verse 7. He says that all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ and those who have been enemies of the message of the gospel, those who have been persecuting Christians down through the ages, those who stand in opposition to the reign, the sovereignty of God, listen, they will see Him and the, it will elicit a dread and a mourn within them. They will begin to grieve deep in their souls because they know they're doomed. And yet those who Love the Lord, as we'll see. Delight at His second coming. I'd love to think that any time we'd hear that great archangel shout from heaven, we'd hear that blasting, piercing trumpet call, and in the twinkling of an eye find ourselves being caught up in that great rapture of the church to be with the Lord forever. And listen, I would lo- I live for that moment if God would so bless me in my lifetime to experience that. But irregardless, if I'm not in the generation of the rapture, I know I will be with Him. Because the Scripture tells me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're a child of God, dear friend, I don't care what the state of the world is, you are a winner. You are in a win-win situation. That's what Paul said in Philippians 1.21. He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so whenever He comes, whenever He chooses to manifest His, his physical presence upon the, on the face of the earth, we still will rejoice whether we're here on the earth and we see Him coming or whether we are there with Him in heaven and we come with Him. There will be great rejoicing. But for those who reject the Lord, the response of those will be a massive abandonment of all idols and false worship. Look at verse 7. Let all who put to, be put to shame, who serve carved images, or those who practice idolatry. Did not the Lord God Almighty say to Israel as He gathered them there under the direction of Moses, He says, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt and out of the bondage of slavery. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And when God says no other gods, He means no other gods. 
And in this dreadful day of the Lord, for those who don't know Him, who have rejected Him, this will be a terrible day. You're talking about people dropping idols and hiding them things all over the place. You're talking about people running out of false temples and, and, and separating themselves or trying to from, from false religions. Oh, listen, they will because they'll understand that they are those idols mark them as an enemy of God. But irregardless of whether or not they have an idol in their hand or if they're in a pagan temple, God knows their hearts. God knows their hearts. And oh, I'll tell you something. This great response of dread reflects the futility of man-made religion on the day of the Lord. If ever there was a day where false religions and cults will be absolutely exposed and dealt with, Oh, let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, the people on the earth, the fallen mankind of that day, when they look up, it won't be Buddha they'll see coming in there. It won't be Muhammad. It won't be Krishna. It won't be Joseph Smith. Shucks, it won't even be the 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses coming down out of the clouds. It'll be the Son of God. It'll be the precious only begotten Son of God, the precious Lamb of God, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. He's the one who is coming. Make no mistake about it. And all the world will know that day. And their response will be just as God demanded through his psalm writer in verse 7. Worship him. All you little g gods. It's interesting because in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 6 that same word for gods is used and it speaks of angels. So maybe there are people who are worshiping the angels. Or maybe angels have put themselves in a position. We know there are fallen demons. Fallen angels who are demons. And certainly they probably are being worshipped in some of these temples in, in the Hindu culture, the Buddhist culture, or some of the other false religions. But God just makes it very clear. He says if you are a pope or a potentate or somebody in power that you've elevated yourself somehow to let people think you are God, He says you worship me. Nobody deserves to be worshipped except God. Nobody deserves to have people bow down in homage to them except the Lord of Lords. Worship Him. But then there's celebration, as I said. Dismay or, or delight. Look at verse 8. Zion, which usually typically speaks of, of the city of Jerusalem. Mount Zion. And, and you know, I think about J Jerusalem. My goodness, for centuries, since the reign of David... It's been a divided city. It's been a torn city. It's been a captured city. It's been a destroyed city. It's not been a sovereign city of its own for so long. Even now, today, one of the, the hot spots of contention in the world is the city of Jerusalem. Muslims and Jews trying to determine who's going to control it. I got news for them. That'll be settled in a hurry. There won't be much debate. They won't need a special committee from the UN to come and settle that. Oh no, when Jesus Christ comes in His power and glory and the smoke and the fire and the piercing of His eyes and the power of His Word like a two-edged sword. Listen, when He says, this is my city, everybody scatters. Except His people. Jerusalem will be a delight. They will be glad. They will celebrate. But not only Jerusalem, it says the daughters of Judah. All the villages. All the towns. Throughout the region of Judah. Listen, there will be rejoicing in Israel once and for all. Because the Messiah is coming. Listen, the Lord reigns in complete righteousness and justice. How do we know that? You go back to verse 2. Look how it describes the Lord's throne. 
Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Oh, to God that we would have leaders in this world who would exercise righteousness and justice. Oh, if we had men and women in leadership positions in this nation who were men and women of true biblical character who understood what it meant to lead by righteousness and to lead by justice according to the Word of God. But unless the Lord work a great miracle, that's not going to happen. I don't care what the 2016 presidential election holds. It's just not going to happen. Because there's only one who will rule perfectly in righteousness and justice. And that is the one who deserves to rule. He is the creator of the earth. He is the sovereign ruler of the earth. He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now listen, the Lord, He is to be worshipped. Why? Look at verse 9. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all the gods. How do you see God? Do you make the mistake of just bringing Him down here to the level of just another world religion? I'm sure you don't. But there are a lot of people that do. Oh, He's just another way to salvation. He's just another option that you have in the great plethora of religion out there. Let me tell you something. All the, all the other so-called gods are nothing. Nothing against my God. Holding them up against my God, Jehovah God, the God of the, 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 creation, the creator of the world. Holding these false gods up against my God. It's like holding a firefly up against an F-1 bomber. They're nothing. I like how the psalmist calls God by the name that speaks of his sovereignty. El Elyon, the most high God. I thought it was interesting because all the way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, verse 8, you find one of the first references to God by this name. Isn't it interesting that it wasn't, it wasn't a Jew? Even though it was in the time period of Abraham, Abraham was going to, to, to save his nephew Lot who had been captured by one of the pagan kings, taken into captivity. So Abraham, he's a farmer, but he musters up an army and they go, they whip the daylights out of this pagan king, get his nephew Lot and all of his family and all of his belongings and pick up some booty along the way, you know, and they, they can bring it back, money and jewels and stuff like that. He encounters a very interesting character by the, king, by the name of King Melchizedek. I haven't seen too many children, people name their children Melchizedek. Uh, I don't know what you call him for short, but uh, milk. But anyway... Interesting character. Because the Bible describes him as Abraham encountered him. And this is before God has established his system of worship. He encounters this priest king by the name of Melchizedek. And it's interesting because Abraham has learned of God by the name Yahweh. Yahweh is the God of covenant. The God who loves to covenant with his people. A personal kind of approach to God. On the other hand, here comes Melchizedek. He's very priestly. He, he, in that encounter, he makes it known to Abraham that I know you're God. You call him Yahweh, but I call him El Elyon. Now, think about it. Here's a pagan, here's a, a, a believer, a believer in Jehovah God who's living in a pagan culture. I mean, there are false gods, idols, false beliefs. Oh, I mean, you shake a tree and an idol will fall out. He's in the midst of a very dark and pagan land. So what name would God give him to tell others? Who, well, tell us about this God that you believe in. He says, oh, I believe in El Elyon. In other words, he's the most high God. He's way, he's infinitely higher than your false dead gods. That's the God I worship. And the psalmist says, you, O oh God, 
You are the Most High. You're above the earth. You're above the celestial heavens above us. You're above the constellations and the galaxies. You're above heaven. You're above the angels. You're above the principalities. Oh God, you are higher than higher. And the highest. Because you are God. When the Lord returns upon this earth to establish His reign, let me tell you something. He will be exalted as the high, mighty God. Well, we need to move along and finish out because I want you to see what I consider to be the results of the Lord's return as we look at verses 10 through 12. The people of God reflect His holiness on the earth. When God is reigning on the earth, His people represent Him. They reflect Him. You don't have to wait till Jesus comes again to experience the kingdom, kingdom of God, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is here. That's what John the Baptist was saying when he began his ministry way back there in the early chapters of Matthew. He was telling the people, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's just around the corner. The king is coming. He's the son of God. He's the one, John says, that I'm not even worthy to untie his, the, 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 the straps of his sandal. John says, I baptize with with water, but he's going to baptize with the fire and with the Spirit. Oh, listen, the kingdom of God was coming. And when Jesus Christ stepped forward and laid claim to his role as a Messiah, the kingdom of God was established on the earth. Not in full. Not in full. The kingdom of God resides in the hearts of every true born-again believer who chooses to follow Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about that nominal bunch of cultural Christians out there who wear crosses around their neck and they got bumper stickers, beep if you love Jesus and stuff like that. Yet they live like the rest of the world's crowd. No, I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who are true, genuine, sold out to the Bible, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, God-loving followers of Jesus Christ. In, their, in our hearts is the kingdom of God. Do you understand? To the lost pagan world out there, you represent Christ. The only semblance of Jesus Christ that many of those people will see is in your daily life, is in your life in the neighborhood, your life at school, your life on the workplace. Listen, if people want to see the kingdom of God, they look at the true believers today. But as you all know, we're in the minority. I'm kind of used to that being Native American, but spiritually speaking. But the people of God will in that day Reflect the holiness of the Lord on the earth. All over the earth, the kingdom of God will be reflected. Look at verse 10. You who love the Lord hate evil. How about that? You who love the Lord hate evil. That's the response of the people of God. We are not afraid to take a stand in that day. In that day, nobody will like sin. Nobody will compromise with sin like a lot of people in the churches today. Nobody will be making excuses for the practice of sin. Why? Because they know that their God hates sin. He loves the sinner, and I'm glad for that. But the Bible is very bold. He says, you who love the Lord, you hate evil. You know, it's interesting. We began this series of messages out of the Psalms and I started with where the beginning Psalm 1 and in verse 1 and in that you may recall it talks about what it, this is a, a sample he's given a sample of a person who is a member of, this, of, of the kingdom of God 
And he said, blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the ungodly, or stands in the, in the path of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scornful. Oh no! But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate day and night. And he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, and he will bring forth his fruit, and his leaf will not wither. And whatever he does in God's eyes, and God's will will prosper. Well, that was just an exception to the rule. Because most of the people in that time, just like most of the people nowadays, don't hate evil. They don't deplore sin. They compromise. And, but you see, but in the day of the Lord, it's going to be this way all over the earth. And the Lord will live through His people as He establishes His reign upon this earth. Our deep love for and respect for the Lord Jesus Christ guards our hearts and our minds and our lives. If you love the Lord, then you don't have a problem understanding that sin is sin. If you passionately love the Lord Jesus, then the things that He hates, you hate. God's people have no trouble saying abortion is a sin. A homosexuality or any sexual immorality is a sin. It's evil. We don't have a problem with that. We don't have to make it rationalizations. We don't have to come up with excuses. If it's sin, we hate it because God hates it. But we don't hate the people who tragically are practicing sin. Because God doesn't hate them. He loves them. And so should we. And that's why we tell the people the truth of the gospel. Share with them the truth of God's word. But here's another benefit for you and I. As we look at the results of the Lord's return and the impact that it has, it emboldens our witness at the people of God across the land. But look at verse 10 also. He preserves the souls of His saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. You see what He's saying there? The Lord provides eternal security for those who have put their faith and trust in God. I love that song we used to sing, Now I belong to Jesus. Jesus belongs to me. There's that bond. I love what Paul said in Romans 8, 38, where he says, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or principalities, or powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Could I get an amen there, ladies and gentlemen? Do you ever stop and think about that glorious promise? There's nothing, not even the devil himself, not all the powers of the world, not even the governments collectively of the world that can separate you from the God who loves you and sent His Son to die for you. You are sealed in the hands of God. Jesus said as the Good Shepherd in John's Gospel chapter 10, He says, I am the good shepherd my sheep hear my voice they know my voice they follow my voice and he says those that the father has given unto me no one shall in no wise snatch them out of my hands you are safe and secure not just for the duration of your physical life but for eternity nobody 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 can take you out of the hands of God amen praise the Lord whoo I'll I tell you, if I'd have got two more, more amens, I'd have jumped over this pulpit and ran the aisle. But I'm getting old. That doesn't mean that we won't encounter hardships. 
That doesn't matter, mean that we won't have heartbreaks, disappointments. It doesn't mean that we won't face tragedies. It just simply says that you are safe and you are eternally secure. And one day, listen, it's hard for us to fathom that because the world that we live in is so dangerous and chaotic and unpredictable. And we're talking about third world wars and things like that. But listen, there's going to come a day. There's going to come a day where we'll be able to nestle up to the presence of God. There won't be any evil. There won't be any sin. There will be no reason to have apprehension of fear because we will be in the very presence of God. But the Lord says through His Word, until then, He says, I got you. I don't just have you back. I've got you. Amen? Praise the Lord. Wow. He preserves the soul's of his saints. And I say hallelujah. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Well, let's move on because we've got to close. God's people live in the radiance of his righteousness. God's people live in the radiance of his righteousness. Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. In John's gospel it says, and the light came into the darkness. Jesus said for you who follow him, who are truly dedicated to him, he says, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they'll see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, we're just getting glimpses of the light today. It's like looking at the moon and thinking about the sun. There's going to be a day that we won't have to worry about reflections of the light because let me tell you something, we will be in the presence of the Shekinah glory of God and the light of God will shine and not, not even the circumstances of our life will matter because we will still see the light of God. And the light of God will give us hope in this life. I think about the prophet Habakkuk. And there in chapter 3, verse 17, at the close of that book of prophecy, that minor prophet, in verse 17, chapter 3, he says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels. And that's not the kind of high heels the ladies wear. It's lofty mountain tops. The sprite the darkness that we live in, despite the dismal state of the world that we find ourselves enveloped in, despite the depressing circumstances that sometimes enfold our lives, we know by faith in the Word of God that He will one day shine His glorious, righteous light all over the face of the earth. There won't be one crack or crevice in all of creation. Pick your solar system. Pick your planet. Pick your star. There won't be one place in all of creation where the Shekinah glory of the righteousness of God won't be shining. There will be no darkness anymore. And that's what the coming of Christ again symbolizes. He, that light, as I said, resides in us. Even in the old book of Prophecy in Isaiah chapter 58. I think about when he was saying there in Isaiah 58 verses 9 and 10. He says, remove the yoke from your midst. Talking to God's people. The speaking of weak wickedness and pointing of the finger. He says, and give yourself to the hungry. Satisfy the desires of the afflicted. Now listen to what he said. 
and your light will rise in the darkness. Do you want to see God's people shine? Do you want to see the body of Christ here on earth shine? Let me tell you how it shines. It's when we get our selfish, self-centered eyes off of ourselves. It's when we stop pointing fingers at brothers and sisters and making them the object of the problem when it's really us. When we're preoccupied with our materialism and, 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 and our pleasure and comfort, and when we forget that and we begin to look around us and we see the people who are struggling, who have genuine needs, who need a helping hand, when we get our eyes off of those kinds of things and put our eyes on the things that attract God, then the prophet says, then your light will rise in the darkness. Oh, wouldn't it be a glorious day to see the light of the glory of God shining in this sanctuary, shining in this church body, shining in the lives of members of this church going out into a sin-darkened community. Wouldn't it be a glorious thing to see the light of God begin to shine in us as the people of God? Isaiah goes on to say, and your, and your, and your midday or, or your gloom will become like midday. It'll be like somebody turning on a light bulb. In that day, the glory of God will shine. <clears throat> and it will shine all over creation. At the Lord's table, we remember that our Savior, Jesus Christ, He has come. Praise God. He came, He died. He shed His precious blood for the atonement of our sins. He was resurrected on the third day, the first fruit of the resur- re- resurrection. He has ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father. At the table we celebrate the fact that our Savior has come. It's documented in the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. But we also celebrate the fact that He's coming again. He's coming again. Oh, let me tell you something. You may be here and you're weary and you're worn through the problems of life and the effects of sin upon your life and upon those you love and you are, you're in dismay over the conditions of the world and our country and the, the domestic violence and the threats of war. You see the poverty and the persecution of righteous people. Oh, let me tell you something. You may be trudging along and you're getting weary and you're getting tired. And let me tell you something. You don't have to worry. All you got to do is look up towards heaven. All you got to do is cast your eyes upon the Lord. Listen, one day He's coming and it could be sooner than you think. I pray it is. And when He comes, He will come in power and He will come in glory. And there will be hope again and there will be righteousness upon all of the earth. And we will gather around the throne of God with all the saints who have gone before us. With all the heavenly hosts. And we'll join as one voice, as one body as we give praise to the Lamb of God who shed His blood for the remission of our sins. And we will give Him praise and honor and glory. Praise and honor and glory forever and forever. You don't have to wait till things get good to begin to give glory to God, ladies and gentlemen. The year was 1861. In the heat of the bloody civil war that literally was tearing our nation apart. Julia Ward wrote these lyrics to a familiar tune of that day. And you know them. In the midst of this civil war and the bloodshed and the ravages of civility of this nation and division, she said, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of His terrible and swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory! Glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Our God 
is marching on. Take heart, Christians. Look up, church. Jesus is coming again.